Well, would you pray with me as we open up our time together? Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you, like we uh, sang today, you are the way maker, you are the miracle worker, you are the living hope, you have given us new life. And so Jesus, we just want to draw close to you this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you open up our hearts and open up our ears to hear what you're saying, and would you give us courage to respond to what you are doing? We love you, Jesus, and we're so grateful we get to gather together in this building uh, to worship you. Would you lead us this morning? In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today I want to start with a little story. So, growing up, my brother and I had a dream. We really wanted a dog. But there were some factors that got in the way of that dream, and my parents told us that one of those factors were, you are just too young. But when you turn 11, we will get you a dog, because then you can walk the dog around the neighborhood, and we don't have to worry about that. And so as soon as they gave me an age, the countdown began, and I was 75% of the way there as I saw my eighth birthday on the horizon. But that year, my parents called us into their room, and they said, Ashish and Amit, my brother, we have some big news for you. And I thought, was this it? Had the day arrived early? Was I going to be a dog owner? Was I going to have a new purpose to take care of this new addition to the family? But I could not have anticipated what came out of their mouth. They said, Ashishanamath, you are going to have a baby sister. (laughs) Now, to say that I had an identity crisis in that moment might sound really dramatic, but all of a sudden, I went from thinking I was going to be a dog owner to now I was a big brother. I went from my purpose being, oh, I'm going to take care of this four-legged creature, to now my brother and I had to keep an eye out for sister. We love her. She's on the worship team today. So. <laughs> now, I'd love to say that that was the only identity crisis I faced, but I faced many in my life. For example, in middle school, I had braces. And I feel that every time I smiled, I went through an identity crisis. And then let's jump ahead to college. When I graduated from college, and I experienced what I dramatically called a quarter-life crisis. I would talk to my parents. I'm like, parents, I'm going through a quarter-life crisis right now. I had just left my community at school. I was living in a new state, and I remember with dread waking up and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm an adult. Now you might be thinking, okay, Ashish, this is a really uplifting way to start a sermon. That Packer loss last week might have really hit you hard. So why are we talking about identity crises? Well, it might sound dramatic or tragic, but I think we all will experience identity crises in our lives. These are times that are brought about by change or disruption in our lives, something that shakes our belief of who we are and invites us to readjust our identity and readjust our purpose. Now, some of this disruption is good. It could be a new life stage. You could be an empty nester. or You could have just sent your first kid to kindergarten. You could have got a new job or moved to a new location or maybe taken another step in a relationship. But I know that some of this disruption can be really tough. Like when you lose a friend, or when you receive that unexpected diagnosis, or when you don't get the job that you were hoping for. These times cause us to question who we are and why we're here. And it's not just individually that we face these identity crises, but I think corporately we also face identity crises. And I think right now the church is in an identity crisis. When it comes to disruption, it's almost overwhelming to think of the last two years. We have gone and are still going through a pandemic. We have witnessed political divides that run deep in our nation. 
We've seen racial injustice here in our own city, and we've seen Christian leaders fail. And that's just to name a few of these disruptions. And I feel like in the midst of everything that is going on, the church is stuck wondering, how are we supposed to live? And who are we? Well, this fall, we are reading the book of Ephesians, where the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people who are trying to figure out who they are and what is their purpose. And in our passage this morning, Paul points the church to a new identity. They are resurrected. And he points them to a new purpose, to reflect God's grace. And so put together, this morning, a Jesus-centered church is resurrected to reflect God's grace. So we're going to unpack what that means. So if you have a Bible or if you have an app, and if you don't, it'll be on the screen. But we are going to go through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 this morning. So you can turn there with me. Now, because this, church was writ- or this letter was written to the church in Ephesus, during the series, we are going to have different people in our community read the text. And this is just a way that we get to hear the different voices of our church. And so this weekend, one of our leadership team members, Simon, is going to come up and read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. But before he leads us, just some context. Remember what Steph said last week, that while we can individualize this message, when we see the word you, the word you is not singular, but plural. And so we have to think that Paul is not saying you, but he is saying you all. And second, this letter was written to both the Jewish and non-Jewish Jesus followers, or Gentiles. And there definitely was some tension between these two ethnic groups. In fact, when Paul was writing this letter, he was in prison, and he was most likely in prison because he brought a Gentile into the Jewish temple. There is some tension between these groups. So with thinking about this as you all and thinking of these two groups, uh, Simon, would you lead us through the text this morning? This is God's word, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Thank you, Simon. So Paul is writing to both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers referred to as Gentiles. And he highlights this massive before and after when it comes to their identity. Maybe you noticed this when we read the passage. Paul first starts with who they were before Jesus. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, when Paul says you here, he is specifically referring to the Gentile Jesus followers. See, Ephesus was the epicenter of worship for the Greek and Roman gods. And while the Gentiles might have appeared alive on the outside, before Jesus, they were internally living in a way that was not following God, but following the world. 
I appreciate Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the next verse in the message translation. Eugene Peterson says, You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. The world's values led to a life trapped in selfishness and sin. Now, when it comes to sin, I know that this word can be a little ambiguous. What does sin mean? Often it's just reduced down to a moral right or wrong, or if I did something wrong, I sinned. But I think in this passage, sin has a greater definition. And when it comes to that definition, I really appreciate what Pastor Rich Velotis writes. There's a quote on the screen. He says, sin turns us inward in such a way that we get stuck. Horribly so. It causes us to desire an illusion, to center the world on our comfort, security, fear, and desire, and personal perspective. It curves us inward, leaving little room for God or anyone else. And later in his book, he writes that sin is not just doing something, but sin is the negation of love. This inward stuck life is what the Gentiles were trapped in. They were chasing an illusion which was only leading them further and further away from God and into darkness. Now, just when the Jewish believers might have thought, get it, Paul, call out the Gentiles, Paul quickly brings the Jewish believers in as well. In verse 3, he says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, just like sin, flesh can also be a puzzling word, and Paul uses this word a lot. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh here, he is referring to a power that is opposite the way of the Spirit. So maybe some of you are familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, it says, is love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness. And through other passages similar to this, we can see that the way of the Spirit is defined by seeking God's glory and the good of those around us. This is opposite the way of the flesh, which seeks our own glory and our good at the expense of those around us. Another way to say this is that the way of the Spirit is defined by other-centered or agape love, but the way of the flesh is void of that love. This was the original identity of the Jews and Gentiles before Jesus. Now here in Minnesota, we know what it's like to be stuck. Every winter, it's like a rite of passage to get your car stuck in the snow, where you're moving nowhere. That's the kind of stuck the Jews and Gentiles were in. They were stuck in their self-centered way of living. They were going nowhere. There was no hope. They were helpless. And this living was not neutral, but it was like a poison that was slowly killing them from the inside. Paul considers all of this and concludes this picture of this first identity with a bleak diagnosis. He says, we were all by nature deserving of wrath deserving of judgment, all in need of grace. This is who they were. Yet just when it feels like there is no hope, Paul continues, but God. Now, I think those are two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. And while the NIV organizes this phrase differently, in Greek, verse 4 moves from this bleak picture and starts with a jolt. De theos, but God. When it seemed like life was heading one direction, there was this divine disruption. Now, I actually feel like this phrase describes God's action throughout the whole of Scripture. Some of you might be familiar with the story of the Exodus and how the Israelites left Egypt. 
And on their way out of Egypt, they were trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. There was no way out, but God made a way through the sea. On the other side, they found that there was no food in the wilderness, and they thought they would starve, but God provided what they needed for each day. This past summer, we learned about three young men that refused to bow down to a Babylonian king. They were thrown in a furnace so hot that even the guards who threw them in died. But God was with them and protected them in the fire. Maybe some of you have experienced these but God moments. Moments where you felt helpless. Moments where the situation has felt like there is no hope. But then you experience God's presence in a sweet and real way. I think the greatest picture of this but God moment is when we get to the New Testament. And we see God step down into our brokenness. Jesus, God incarnate, brought in a new kingdom. And through Jesus' life, we can see the healing and restoration that God can bring. Jesus welcomed those who were on the outside and was truly Emmanuel, God, with us. And his love went one step further. He took on the sins and brokenness of the whole world, the things that separated humanity from God, and he died the death that humanity deserved on the cross. Earlier in this passage, Paul talks about how we were deserving of judgment. Well, God saw that judgment and says, I don't want anything to separate me from you, and so I am going to take that judgment that you deserve on myself. And so he takes that on himself, and he dies on the cross. And we know that Jesus breathed his last. And in that moment, it looked like the disciples had lost the one who was supposed to be their king. It looked like darkness had won and that death was the end. But God, like we sang this morning, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. And God raised Jesus from the dead. And because Jesus died the death we deserved in his resurrection, in his new life, there is new life for us as well. Life defined by relationship with God. Life defined by victory over sin. Life defined by reconciliation with one another. Paul continues, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, even in the depth of our brokenness, God didn't say, all right, come up here and then you can receive my grace. God stepped down into the brokenness and made us alive with Christ. Paul says, It is by grace that you have been saved. Paul is saying to the church, this is the difference Jesus makes. This is the new identity you are invited into. You have been resurrected. Or in other words, the old way of life you were stuck in has been put to death. And you have been given new life in Christ. You are no longer captive to sin, but you are free in Christ. You are no longer outcast, but you belong. You no longer are people without any hope. But now this new life comes with a new hope. And not just a new hope, but a new future. Paul continues, God has now raised you all up with Christ and seated you all in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. This echoes what Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 where he talks about Christ being raised from the dead and seated above all rulers and authorities in this age and the one to come. Paul is making this connection between the church and Jesus and saying Jesus has given us hope. We get to look forward to the day when we get to experience God's presence and where Jesus will make all the wrong things right. But this is not something in the distance. We get to experience God's presence. We get to experience this new life now. We get to enjoy the reality of this resurrection life. We get to enjoy the reality of this new identity now. 
What this meant practically for the church is it meant that they were empowered by the Spirit to join the work that God was doing. That meant that they had freedom from shame and feeling stuck in sin. That meant that they had the supernatural ability to love and forgive others even when it was hard. And what we'll see later in Ephesians, it meant that they had the supernatural ability to bring two groups of people that were so opposite each other together into one church. This is the new identity that the believers had in Christ. We have been resurrected. But it's almost like Paul says, wait, there's more. In Jesus, this new life, this new resurrected identity comes with a new purpose. Now, this next verse might sound really familiar. It's actually a very popular verse in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. For we, the church, Jewish and Gentile believers, are God's handiwork. Now, the Greek word for handiwork or masterpiece is poema, which just means that there is something made. This word was used in the ancient world to speak of creative accomplishments like painting a picture or writing a poem. Now, recently, Anne and I got some artwork in the mail from one of our friend's daughters. There's a picture on the screen here. Now, this is no Van Gogh. This is no Sistine Chapel. But, and I love how the mom, she writes some clarifications onto what everything is. So in the center is Ashish as a dog. And on the left side is Ash, uh, Anna as a dog. And at the top corner, if you can't read it, is Mr. Rogers. <laughs> that is the picture. Now, what I love about this picture is that it reflects the heart of the artist. It might not look like much, but when I look at this picture, I can see her gratitude. I can see her imagination, her creativity, and, and maybe even her love of Mr. Rogers. Good art whether a song, a poem, a painting, or book, will always point to the heart of the artist. And that's the purpose Paul gives the believers. He says, we are God's masterpiece, the canvas on which he has painted his love and his grace. We were taken from death and given a new life, and this new life comes with a new purpose. We are sent by God to join in the work he is already doing in the world. And as we do, our purpose is to reflect the heart of the artist to reflect God's grace. To not only be recipients, but reflections, a picture of God's indescribable and unfailing love. Now, the rest of Paul's letter covers different ways that the church can reflect God's grace. But chapter 2 is really important because it all starts with, it all centers on Jesus and what Jesus has done. A Jesus-centered church is resurrected to reflect God's grace. So, what does that mean for us today? Well, the before and after that Paul talks about is not unique to the Jesus followers back then, but actually describes us as well. We don't have to look far to see the brokenness of humanity and the ways that we choose to look inward, the ways we choose to center our lives on the illusions of this world, on power and security, on our own personal perspectives. We see this even in the church, how people in the name of Jesus have actually lived in a way very contrary to Jesus, Ways void of love, ways of judgment and hypocrisy, ways of apathy or greed. And the unfortunate thing is that that list could go on and on. In our day and age, I believe we've seen the church center on things that are not Jesus, and it is like a poison that is killing us from the inside out. This is leading us down a path of death. 
But just like when it feel, felt like there was no hope for the Jews and Gentiles believers, there is hope for us as well. And God in his great love and grace invites us as the church to choose an identity that is centered on Jesus. Centered on his works, his words, and his ways. To be a people and community that is truly surrendered to Jesus' leadership and guidance in our lives. We have been given a new life and a new purpose. And so as we leave the space and we step into what Monday through Saturday holds, I think that there are two questions that this passage brings up for us. And they'll be on the screen. The first question we need to ask after we read this passage is, is there an area in your life where you need to receive God's grace? Is there an area in my life where I need to receive God's grace? This identity of being resurrected, of being given new life, is available to us all. And receiving God's grace is the only way that we can step into this new life. Now, as I was thinking about it this week, I think that there are two reasons where we might need grace, out of the many reasons we might need grace. But here are just two. First, we need grace when we've done something wrong. When we've lived into the old way of life, when we feel stuck in sin, Grace reminds us that we have a God who is great in love and rich in mercy. That there is forgiveness and freedom from a life controlled by sin. And stepping into this life, receiving this grace, reminding ourselves of this grace, means confessing where we've sinned. And not just stopping there, but saying, God, I want your grace to come. To lead me, to set me free, to transform my life. We need God's grace when we've done something wrong. But the second reason where we might need God's grace is the belief when we haven't done enough to earn that grace. Now, I don't know if you ever have those moments, but I've had these moments where I was literally living out the words, works, and ways of Jesus. I was loving my neighbor, and then I leave that moment, and a little voice of shame pops into my head. And it says, well, you should have prayed a little bit more. You should have shared your faith. You should have talked about Jesus. And I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong. In fact, we are empowered by the Spirit to do this stuff courageously. But at least in my life, it can feel like no matter how much I do, there's a cloud hanging over me. I am always going to disappoint God. I can never do enough. Maybe some of you are in that place this morning. Now, if that's you, I just want to call it out. This is a lie from the enemy. It's an example of the world telling us how we should live. In an achievement and success-based culture, no matter how often we hear that grace is a free gift, we always feel like we have to earn it. But Paul says that this is exactly the opposite of what has happened. Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved, and it is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. Here's the thing. To think that we could even earn God's grace is honestly thinking too highly of ourselves. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't share about Jesus. I'm not saying that we should be courageous. I'm not saying that we should not take risks. But we have to take risks out of a place of having received that grace instead of doing it to earn God's grace. Because this is a gift. And this is the new life that Jesus invites us into. So is there an area in your life where you need to receive God's grace? Maybe that's at work. Maybe that's in an interaction with a coworker. Maybe that's as a parent. You need to receive God's grace in the way that you're parenting your child. Maybe it's your whole life. Maybe you're reading this before and after picture in Ephesians and you're thinking, I don't think I've actually surrendered my life to Jesus and stepped into this grace that Jesus offers. I feel like I'm stuck in this old way of life and I don't think I've stepped into the new way of life. Well, this gift is for you. 
And Jesus invites you to surrender your life to him and say, Lord, I trust your leadership in my life. I trust the work that you're doing, and I want your grace to transform me and help me reflect that grace to those around me. If that's you and you're wondering, what does it look like to even step towards this grace for my whole life? There will be people on the sides of the room during our last time of worship who would love to pray over you and would love to explore that decision with you. What does that look like in your life? But is there an area where we need to receive God's grace? Second, once we've received that grace, what is one way that you can reflect God's grace in your everyday space? We were talking about poema, so I needed a rhyme there. So what is one way that you can reflect God's grace in your everyday space? This new identity comes with a new purpose. Church doesn't begin Sundays at 10 a.m. and end at 11.10. No, as Jesus followers, when we step into our everyday spaces, we are the church representing Jesus wherever we go. In fact, God has prepared us and empowers us to join him in reflecting his grace to the world around us. So when you think of this question, how can I reflect God's grace in my everyday space, the first thing to think of is, what is my everyday space? To whom or to where has God sent me? This could be a specific person in your life. This could be a specific neighborhood, a workplace, a school, a location. To whom or to where has God sent me? And once you think of that everyday space, Just engage the question, what is one way that I can reflect God's grace in that space? What is one way that we can live out of the new life that God has given us? A life defined by the great love that we see in this passage. And Mill City, I know that many of you are doing this. Even this past week, there were some examples of how our community reflected God's grace in their everyday space. I think of those of you who partnered with a teacher here at Las Estrellas to flip their classroom so that they could better love their kids that are coming to this school. I think of those of you who make meals and those of you who show for people during times of change. I think of the stories of those of you that have told me that your coworkers are approaching you for prayer because they see that there is something different in you. And I think of the ways that you have created safe spaces for neighbors to share their story. One exciting thing that I heard this week about someone who's engaging their everyday space is about a group of people that are trying to make education accessible for those of our refugee neighbors. I'm just going to put Mitch Reem on the spot there. I can see him in the back there. But this past week, I heard what Mitch and his friends were doing. They found out Minnesota is home to many refugees. This was their everyday space. But they found out that there is a problem. There are financial barriers that our refugee neighbors face when it comes to accessing four-year higher education. And so they decided, we're going to get together, and we're going to try and raise money to provide scholarships. And they're driven by the mission that when our neighbors thrive, we all thrive. That is a picture of reflecting God's grace in your everyday space. Now, some of you are running for access to clean water in a couple weeks. Some of you are welcoming people into your home. There's so many other examples that I didn't talk about. But what is one way you can reflect God's grace in your everyday space? As followers of Jesus, we have been given a new life and a new purpose. And God has painted his love and kindness on our lives so that like a piece of art, our lives can reflect the heart of the artist. And honestly, when I think of the world right now, a world that seems to get darker and more evil and more broken every day, the world needs a church that is centered on Jesus, 
that reflects this grace to them. As I was preparing this message, I actually did uh, the thing that, you know, some pastors do for an illustration, which is I googled, why is the church blank, blank, blank. And what happens on Google is that it will come up with the most asked questions. And so some of the top questions were, why is the church important? Why is the church dying? I looked at why are Christians, and one of the top responses were, why are Christians so judgmental? But can you imagine if there was a day when the most frequently asked question is, why is the church grace-filled? That is the purpose that Jesus invites us into. And it's not to point back to the church, but it is to point a world to Jesus who offers this new life for them to step into as well. Amen? The band can come up as we close. Now, this morning, one of the ways here at Mill City we remember to receive and reflect God's grace is through the practice of communion. And this morning, I wanted to give us a little extra time to engage this practice together. Communion is one of the ways that we remember the ultimate picture of God's great love and great mercy. We remember that as Jesus was heading to the cross to take that judgment that separated us onto himself, he sat with his disciples around a table. And he took the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you. And this morning, as we engage the practice of communion, we remember the way that Jesus gave his life for us. And he died. And in dying, took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. But this morning, as we celebrate communion, we also remember that that wasn't the end of the story. We remember that the story ended in resurrection. We remember that when Jesus was raised to life, he offered that new life to us as well. So this morning, as you take communion, Would this be an opportunity to remember that grace? And maybe if you haven't opened up your life to that grace, would this be an opportunity to open up your life to that grace for the first time? So just practically how this will work is there will be people down in the front here. And what you'll do is you'll come up to the table, stop for a moment, take the elements, and then walk back to your seat. The worship team will be playing music and there will be people on the sides of the walls who would love to pray over you and bless you. So take your time. Consider, is there an area where I need to receive God's grace? And is there a way, Holy Spirit, that you're inviting me to reflect that grace to those around me? You can come up when you're ready.